John 4, verses 31 through 38. Jesus has just encountered the woman from Samaria, the one who is sleeping with everybody in town. She is a hated Samaritan. She becomes the first evangelist. The disciples show up after the event, and they are trying to get Rabbi to have lunch. And Jesus teaches a most important lesson for all of life. Together as God's people, let's read verses 31 through 38 together out loud. And as you read, listen carefully, you're reading God's word. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to complete his work. Do not say four months more, then comes the harvest. But I tell you, look around you, and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages, and is gathering fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. The sins are reading of God's holy word. Heaven and earth will pass away. But what you just read never will. As we come in uh, this morning on Harvest Sunday and we're celebrating and As Roger said, in a few moments, we're all going to come up here and symbolically lay those cards down. It's a great celebration. And it's interesting that no matter what we do in life, the difference between a glorious adventure of life, you know those great lives that you read about or hear about, or a frustrating treadmill, the same thing over and over, can be summed up in two words, learning potential. The more teachable that we are, the more God can release and unleash into our life the fruit of the Holy Spirit to be able to guide and to lead us. And what's interesting is you learn different things at different times in your life. I'm sure you know that uh, developmentally, you can learn to ride a bicycle earliest like at age five or six. If you try too early, it's really hard or later on. And that's also true in the things of life spiritually. Uh, Children, as we uh, talk about... The different lessons of uh, life. I love it when they interview them and ask them things. It was fun. We had some of our own up here. It, you learn a lot. Uh, one of the little boys, Patrick, age eight, said, Never trust a dog to watch your food. Isn't that true? <laughs> Michael, age uh, seven, said, When your dad is mad at you and asks, Do I look stupid? Don't answer him. <laughs> Smart kid. Kyoyo said, Never hold a dust buster and a cat at the same time. Lauren uh, said that felt markers are not good for lipstick. One of the great insights, Joel said, don't pick on your sister when she's holding a baseball bat. <laughs> as you get along in life, though, you, you learn other things as people come along and start to realize with life. One of them, uh, Oren said, at age 13, when I get the, my room the way I like it, mom makes me clean it up. <laughs> but then the little joys. Sandy said that brushing my child's hair is one of life's greatest pleasures at age 30. Wherever I go, Bill said at age 30, the world's worst drivers follow me there. (laughs) Children and grandparents are natural allies. Someone at 46 said, and that is so true. 
A gentleman, uh, Harry, said at age 52, you can tell a lot about a person by the way they handle a rainy day, lost luggage, and tangled Christmas tree lights. But you know, as you keep growing on, at age 53, Stephen said, regardless of your relationship with your parents, you miss them after they're gone. Someone at age 58 said, I've learned that making a living is not the same as making a life. Someone, even, or Agnes said, at age 82, even when I have pains, I don't need to be one. Amen. <laughs> and the best, a Carl at age 92 said, I've learned that I still have a lot to learn. As we go through life and as God continues to try to teach us, we finally get smart enough to see how dumb we are. Do you know what I mean? That we realize that all the sophistication for all the gimmicks and games we're going to have, it all comes down to a simple trust in God Almighty and how He takes care of us. Jesus says that there is joy in this great insight when He says to His disciples, life comes to us at different stages. And every stage has its own challenges, its own struggles, and its own joys if we have the faith to embrace it. I want to tell you this morning, what we're going to talk about applies to your careers, it talks about to your relationships, it certainly applies to evangelism, and it talks about our finances. There's the joy, first of all, in sowing, unlocking new potential. There's a fresh new beginning every day. There's a joy in not just the sowing, but the growing. Life goes at God's speed. You can't hurry it up, and you can't slow it down. And there's a joy in realizing we don't need to do that. There are certain stages for different things. Finally, what we're celebrating this morning is there's this joy in the mowing, in the harvest. And you and I can actually take an advance withdrawal on the riches in heaven, on what the glory that is waiting for us when we learn to start trusting the Lord and walking with Him. And that's what this celebration is all about. And Bel Air, with the things that we've got in front of us to be able to complete this site... And to be able to advance our mission, it is an incredible time to be alive. Let's take a look back at this story a little closer. Turn with me back to John, the fourth chapter, on page 865 in your pew Bible there. There's the joy in sowing and just unlocking the hidden potential. Now, this uh, what I love about the disciples, I so relate to them. They only open their mouth to change feet and... Here, uh, they've gone into town to get food, and Jesus is left alone with this woman. And she's there alone because she's an outcast. And Samaritans and Jews hated each other. The Samaritans were the half-breeds that married into the Assyrians. When the northern kingdom fell, they had their own Bible, their own Pentateuch. They had their own ways. And the true Jews, the survivors of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, despised them. You wouldn't even walk through Samaria. Well, Jesus does, and he has this conversation with this woman who is sleeping with everybody. And she becomes the first evangelist. And here in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, surely no one has brought him something to eat. Now you see what's going on. They're saying, Rabbi, eat. And Jesus says, I have food to eat you don't even understand. And they go... Now, why did we go into town and buy the burgers, you know? Why didn't we just stay here? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Boys, come here. My very food is to do the will of him who sent me. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And when you and I finally get to the place where we hunger to do what God wants as much as we want the next meal, life is so much more nourishing and satisfying. We develop tastes. You know that, don't you? Do you remember the first time you tasted coffee, what you thought? And now you realize it's God's gift to the church. <laughs> that first you, what is this stuff? And now you just love it. Well, we develop our own tastes. And the more we learn to long for doing God's will, rather than just the, the little cotton candy lies of this world, life is so great. And there are givers and there are takers. And the longer I live, the more you just see this plain. And givers will always be givers. And except by a move of the Holy Spirit, takers will always be takers. And the happy ones in life are the givers. That's why Paul, quoting Jesus in a text we do not have, when he's writing the church, said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. If you go down to the University of Mississippi, there is a scholarship that's available there that's from a remarkable woman. She was an African-American lady who, uh, before the dropping of uh, the Jim Crow laws, lit an incredible hard life. She had two jobs. She was a waitress in the daytime, and at night she was on her knees cleaning the offices and the bathrooms of a used car lot there in Mississippi. She took her extra money, and she just put it into mayonnaise jars. And when she died, she set aside enough money to go to the University of Mississippi. A scholarship is available. And they asked her why she did that, and she said... Quote, so someone could have the joy I've had in my life. It's remarkable. How could you, on your knees, scrubbing, in the middle of segregation, have this life of joy? Because she was a giver. Compare that to a 1928 in the Edgewater Hotel. Any of you that have been around church for a while have probably heard of this. A true event in Chicago. Seven of the wealthiest tycoons of business were gathered together. It was a big photo op. These guys never gave interviews, but everybody was gathered together. These seven collectively tycoons controlled more wealth than the United States Treasury at that time. They were advocated to all of the youth and the people of America, this is how your life should be. Twenty-five years later, do your homework. This is what happened to those seven men, how their lives ended. The president of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life, and he died totally broke. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Cutton, died overseas totally broke. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, served two terms in Sing Sing Prison. The member of the president's cabinet, Albert Fall, was pardoned from prison so he could die alone at home. The greatest bear in Wall Street, Jesse Livermore, committed suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Frazier, committed suicide. The head of the world's monopoly, the largest at that time, Ivor Druger, committed suicide. They were gifted at making money, and they failed at making a life. And if I can impress anything upon you, there is a big difference between how you earn a living and what you are living for. And that's what Jesus says to the disciples. Hey guys, my food isn't just about the belly. It's about to do the Father's will. And that's why he said, pull your head 
up off of the ground, put your eyes out there, and see that the fields are already white for harvest. Don't think that ten years from now your life will be worth living, or maybe you do something great later on, and maybe even three years. He goes, look at right now the things that God wants to do with your very life. And that's where this great joy of unlocking all this possibility. Do you know that business idea you've got? Well, go ahead and start playing with it. Or that book you want to write or that script, start on it. Don't wait for a magic moment. Or go ahead and start working out. Lose that first pound. I've lost it and gained it every day of my life. (laughs) Go ahead and go ahead and be nice to that obnoxious, rude neighbor one time and see if it doesn't break the ice. Say, oh, Lord, I want to do something different. Believe. Love believes all. And when you love the Lord, you believe in all. Little kids, we, you know, we're trying to put up, we've got so many wonderful children, we're trying to put up space over here for them so they can learn. And don't you love their zeal? Sunday school teacher gave them crayons and they were painting and they said to one of the little girls, what are you drawing? And she said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the Sunday school teacher wanted to be theologically correct, said, no one knows what God looks like. And the little girl went, of course not, I'm not finished. <laughs> but don't you love that sense of, yeah, let me finish this thing here. Well, God puts these ideas. There's a joy in starting it. Before it's ever complete, you can go ahead and enjoy it. Can you see this site when you walk right out here? That we can gather together for a cup of coffee and we can have adult discipleship classes and bring in just world-class teachers and some of you a place to gather for small groups. Can you see that? When you walk here, can you actually see a place for some of the weddings and for some of the gatherings of the funerals there? We try to have receptions out here on this uh, runway we call Fellowship Concrete out here. But it's kind of like some people get sucked to Oz because of the wind out there. But can you see being walked? Can you see our children over here laughing and learning? Can you see as we start to connect with these other churches that down here in the valley in the west side, that this is a city that literally is changed for Christ? Because as we start to sow into them, some of the commitment that we're putting up here, a half a million dollars is going to overseas mission. And I have stood on the ground an hour south of Mexico City in the mountains at Sinai Presbyterian. This guy is a church factory, this pastor down there. He loves the Lord. And they're just coming to Christ right and left, an evangelical Presbyterian that we're going to help. We're going to be helping downtown some of the single moms are trying to get by and to get a home going for that. I mean, can you see that? Can you see the new names written in the Lamb's Book of Life because of what you're going to do? Jesus can. And that's why you can have a joy just in the very starting. What I love about people that understand history is you don't have to do everything. Just start. When I was uh, staying over in Scotland, some of the cathedrals, you know, they would only build a corner of it their entire lifetime. They would cut out the stone, the entire village area in St. Andrews, and they would build it knowing in their lifetime they would never see the roof completed. And they joyfully did it to do their part. What are we like? Oh, my goodness, the zoning puts us back 60 days, and we go, is there a God of love out there? You know, what a bunch of wimps. And God understands that, no, 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 no. There's just the joy in sowing and starting it. There's also not only joy in the sowing, there's the joy in the growing. It's not a one-act play. It's not a one-chapter novel, this thing of what God is trying to do with us. And letting it grow at God's pace. Jesus has a great parable. Turn with me over to Mark, the fourth chapter. 
It's on page 815 in your pew Bible. Mark 4 and verse 26. We'll read this together because it's one of his shortest. It's great through verse 29. Remember, he tells the parables not just as an illustration. Yes, it does reveal more to the believers. But he says, I tell it to deliberately conceal the truth from the half-hearted. And he quotes this weird passage in Isaiah. So that they will see and not understand. So that they will hear and never listen and never understand. In other words, if you're playing with God and not serious, he tells the parables almost as a cloaking device. And so here in verse 26, let's read this together out loud. He also said, The kingdom of God is if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle because the harvest has come. What a great illustration. What he's saying is, a farmer goes out, he sows seed, the guy goes to bed, he doesn't know how it grows, and in the morning it's there. End of story. Meaning what? It's not up to the farmer, who is clueless to the biology behind it. And the farmer doesn't need to scream the plants up or coax the plants up or massage the soil up. All he needs to do or she needs to do is plant the seed and it comes up. And every chapter has its own. You can't force it. Martin Luther, you know, is rather a salty old boy. Uh, when someone said, how come he wasn't working harder and the Reformation was first starting about telling about God? He sat there and he said... The gospel runs its course as I drink my Wittenberg beer. Meaning what? Meaning that as I sit here with my stein of beer, it's unstoppable. This is unstoppable. This is a God. I don't need to force it. It's kind of like, you know, a lot of us need to just mellow out. We've started something, but we don't see the fruit of it. Impatience is the sin of unbelief. Impatience is where we say, okay, God, I give it to you, and then we watch and we go, okay, enough of that. I'm taking it back. I'm taking it back. You couldn't get it done because you couldn't get it done fast enough. And God, by the way, will let you. And you don't want him to do that. You want to keep giving it back to him. So there's a joy even when you started it. And isn't the third lap of a four-lap race the hardest? I mean, you know, when you're out there and you're not done and you still have more to go, and very often that's so true in life, And the organic never comes from the inorganic. Did you see that? Dirt, soil in itself, never produced anything alive without seed. Water never rises above its source. When I get before the Lord and and I will be at the marriage feast of the Lamb with all of you who have given your names to Christ. You know, I don't think it's going to be a real feast. I'll be there bussing tables, but I will be there. And I have a lot of questions to ask of the Lord. I'm afraid he might have a couple to ask of me, too. But uh, why didn't God allow our bodies to regenerate arms or broken spinal cords? I don't know. That's a mystery. No record is there ever of Jesus ever growing back an arm or a leg that was amputated in the Gospels. He heals many that are paralyzed in that sense. But why neurologically didn't he do that? I don't know. But I do also pick up this pattern. Unless you give God something, he doesn't have anything to work with. That's why he has them draw the water in order to make the wine. 
why he takes the little boys, five loaves and two fishes we studied, and fed the multitudes. Why he has the man born blind make the clay and put it on his eyes, and then he heals him. Because you got to put something into his hands, whatever it is, and then he multiplies and uses it. It's part of this, the joy of the stages of growing. And sometimes we get to this place of where we really think it's up to us. And this is really true in evangelism. I know people that say, you know, I'm not an evangelist. I've never brought anybody to Christ. Wrong understanding of evangelism. You need a sower and a grower and a mower when it comes to the spirit and souls of people. Some of you just need to plant the seeds. You take somebody who hates the things of God, spits on the ground when you mention Jesus, and you move them to simply being open. That's evangelism. And then you take them from just... Some of you not only plant the seeds... When somebody that you work with or you're living with just hates Christians and you say, well, you know, the Lord loves me and he loves you. And you go, oh, yeah, you know, you Christians are so whacked. Just keep planting those seeds. And some of us are called to grow what somebody else has planted. They're not there yet. But by you taking time and loving them and being a class act and not tricking them into the, hev- into the kingdom... Like I always use the illustration, you don't get somebody to the kingdom when you take them out to lunch by making your french fries in the sign of a cross and going, what do you see? What does that say to you? (laughs) Actually, you might buy their lunch. That might be one way of helping. But then also, are you ready to mow? If you don't know yet how to lead somebody to a saving knowledge of Christ, oh, you're missing one of the great thrills of life. And I've seen the most mean, obnoxious, cold-hearted people give their life to Christ. Like mine. And if somebody hadn't sown and grown first, I never would have harvested. And that's so true in what we're trying to do up here. Life goes at God's speed. And doesn't that bother you? Does me. God doesn't seem to be in the hurry I am. I told you the story of the guy in prayer saying, God, what's a million years like to you? And he said, well, my son, it's like one of your seconds. He said, I see. And he said, Lord, what's a million dollars like to you? And he said, my son, it's like one of your pennies. And he said, I see. God, can I have one of your pennies? And God said, sure, just a second. Our understanding of time and of stages and of wealth is very different than God's. And what we celebrate in this harvest in here is coming before and taking this advanced withdrawal. That's why James said, make sure that your endurance, your patience, your steadfastness carries you all the way without failing. Don't abort the mission that God has started in you. If you've been starting in something and it's being discouraging, continue to stay in there and keep giving it to the Lord. Paul said... Therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God is to will and to work in you for His good pleasure. Fear and trembling of what? Fear and trembling that you would miss what God's trying to do, and you try to hijack and take over. And so there is this stage in trusting. And financially, I want to tell you, we live in in very bizarre days. I think it's just a pattern of what we see as good getting better and evil getting worse. And Jesus said the wheat and the tares would grow together until the harvest when Christ returns. You find remarkable people of sacrificial love today, and you find the most self-centered, black hole human beings are just falling in on themselves, the ice in the veins people. Americans own 
40% of the wealth of the world and we are less than 5% of this planet. You need to let that sink in. And you ready for this? Of the wealth we own, 3% own almost 50% of that wealth. I mean, how can this be? In the last 50 years, this country has gone through the greatest prosperity in the history of recorded civilization. And yet, there are over 85 million households that right now are on the verge of bankruptcy. Incomes, get out the Department of Labor and Statistics, have gone up 10 to 20 times in the last 20 years. And giving has gone down 50%, a proportion. Do you know why that we have the world that we have out here? Because we really don't trust the Lord. But the great news is Christ is, and he had that little ragtag group of disciples standing there. And, you know, one of the great shocks to Jesus is when he brought the disciples up, you know, the tax collectors, the outcasts, a bunch of fishermen and other people, and he stood before his critics and he said, the kingdom of heaven. And they're all standing there, you know, rearranging their underwear and waving, you know, and saying, hi, guys. And uh, they went, yeah. And Jesus said, no. This is unstoppable. And so at any time, it's never on what the numbers and the statistics are that's out there. It's of the women and the men of faith that are willing to trust the Lord in this. And it's unstoppable. When I first got here uh, three years ago, when I really felt the Lord calling uh, us here, and, and I want to say when I first got here, you so welcomed me graciously, 95% of you. And, um, <laughs> and I just thank the Lord for that. And as we got here, and the first thing we had to do, because that was, if you remember, remember the dot-com bust, the tech wreck, and then the corporate Enron scandals that were going on in 9-11, and we were facing a four to $500,000 deficit in our operating budget. And through a lot of the first stage first, through a lot of fiscal discipline and sacrifice from a lot of you people, we turned that around so that now that we have ending every year in the black right now. When I also first got here, we were still in debt for about $3.5 million still on this building that we're here. And before we went ahead with the campaign, we said, first thing we do, we need to pay this thing off. And through a lot of sacrifice through the growth campaign and a lot of you others, we right now don't own a single thing thing on this church. Is that bizarre? And you're an American church. This is so weird that we are, amen, we are totally debt-free at this time. You go through each stage. And then we had brought in the architects and assessing the needs and listening to your dreams. And we started the zoning process and working with the neighborhood groups. And it's coming around and you've seen the designs and the things that we've got now. And now everything goes through this little bridge called the campaign for Bel Air. If you can see the city transformed and the other churches that are out there and loving our kids, it all depends on how we respond this morning. And that's why, as Roger said, if you came in and you're visiting this, take this back to your home church. And if you don't have a home church, get one. Uh, You need to be connected to the body. And if you are visiting, we want you to write down just on that commitment card there, you can just put down a praise. Praise the Lord for this. Or thank you, God, for doing that. Or maybe an advanced prayer. I'm praying for somebody. And we want to bring this down with this incense, our prayers going up before the throne and saying, thank you, Lord, to that. There's a joy in the sowing. The first stuff. There's a joy in the growing, watching the Lord, but there's also the sheer joy in the harvest. 
Isn't it great when you complete something? Some of you people out there are so into lists. Don't you just write down things you've done so you can check it off your list? Have you noticed that? Got up. Check that one off. Okay. Isn't it fun when you finally get it done like when you clean your closet? I've heard of people that have done this. Isn't it a great joy when you're done working out and that's completed? Or when you finally have read that book or you've turned in that project? You know, one of the great joys of Habitat, why over in Ireland and other places, is when you put a house up when there was nothing, you can see people moving and they are touched by that. And one of the great joys I have is watching you grow in Christ before my eyes. I mean, that's such a joy. And what God is going to do with what we do here, I can't wait to hear the stories of how the Lord will bless and surprise us in all this. And as we bring this forward and say, Lord, this is unto you, we can actually take an advance withdrawal on that. Now, you know, uh, and I want to say thank you. Uh, for the last four weeks, I've been preaching about this campaign for Bel Air. And uh, hopefully you understand the vision to complete this site and advance the mission. And we have talking about finances, and, and you've been a really good church with me so far. And, you know, when it comes to money, and like I say, I, I don't know what any of you are going to give. That's between you and the Lord is why we have those envelopes there. But there's a peace when you release to the Lord. Two guys were wrecked on a desert island, and the one was completely freaking out. And the other one's going, ah, we'll be all right. And he goes, what do you mean? The radio's broke, the boat has gone under, and the other one said, oh, we'll be fine. He said, how can you say that? He said, well, I make $5 million a year. He goes, what does that have to do anything? He said, trust me, I tithe, my pastor will find us. <laughs> well, I have no idea uh, who that is in here. But this morning, there are some of you, as we come down here... What sacrifice to you is going to be. And this is over and above your regular giving to the Lord. For some of you, this is the first time you've never really stepped out in faith. And some of you, it'll only be a a few hundreds of dollars over the next three years. And that's going to be sacrifice. And God bless you in that. That honors the Lord. Some of us need to hit some singles, you know. You win baseball games by singles, not homers. Need to hit the tens of thousands of dollars. Some of you hit doubles and triples. But you know what? In every successful campaign, you need a couple Gary Bonds, Sammy Sosa's out there that are going to knock it out of the park. And I need some of you in here this morning to knock it out of the park. Because the Lord has blessed you in that way, and you need to respond in that way. And what it's all about is the coming down here before the Lord. And when we have His presence, His trust. I heard a woman speaking at Mops. I heard of that mothers of preschoolers, kind of like our mothers and others. And she shared a story that just was unbelievable. She taught her little toddler, I don't know how old, maybe four or five, I don't know, how to do the Lord's Prayer. The beginning of, excuse me, the, the 23rd Psalm. And the first words, the Lord is my. And then she'd take her hand and wrap it around shepherd like God protects you and giggle and laugh and mom would tickle her and hold her. And she'd go to bed at times and say, the Lord is my shepherd. She contracted a very rare disease. I forget the mom was sharing what it was. And, and they watched and they watched. And one night when they woke up in the morning to come down to wake her up, God had taken her. But they saw her laying there in her crib with her hand around her thumb. How do you teach a child not to be afraid and that God is your shepherd? How do we teach our kids 
that in the middle of wars in Iraq and the sewage that goes through the media that is out here and all the paranoia and the liars like Enron scandals and all the politicians, how do you teach them that they can trust God and that life is okay and that the Lord, He's got great things in store? And the answer is, you provide for them, that's how. We're going to get ready to come up here in a moment as we say uh, and to celebrate and to say thank you. We're almost out of incense, which is good because I'm almost passing out from nose hits up here. But um, but as we uh, celebrate, to uh, bring this before the Lord to say thank you. Let this be a prayer before Him. So if uh, at this time you would just take out one of uh, that envelope, and uh, there are pens that are out there. And if uh, you don't have a pen, I will certainly get one to you uh, for this. And if you just write down to your visitor, just put a praise on there and then close it up. And if this is your home church, what you think the Lord is guiding to lead you. But before you do that, let's as a holy act. Let's go before the throne of grace and let's pray. Shall we pray? Almighty God of the harvest. God, you who have sown so much into our lives. And Lord, all you ask us to do is to trust you and to give back. Lord, I thank you that you don't want us to give out of compulsion, Lord, or being manipulated. You simply, as our, as your daughters and your sons, to come forward and say, Oh, thank you, Heavenly Father. I trust you. I thank you, God, for the people that are going to be able to give just a little bit. And, Lord, in this time of their financial testing, Lord, give them faith and strength. Lord, for a lot of us, we need to trust you and honor you and put our oar into the water deep for the first time maybe in our life financially and see what a great God you are. But, Lord, I thank you, and I pray that, Lord, as we continue to give to you, that you'd be pleased, not with the amount that's written on these cards, God, but with our heart and our love for you and for our brothers and sisters. Thank you, Lord. We give this to you. In your name we pray. Amen.